Good morning. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, it is a beautiful day to be together to worship the Lord. I don't know about you guys, but when you moved into a house, you found that when you moved in that house, some of the things that you would decide on were not what the previous owners decided on. When we moved in our house, the previous owners were gardeners. Uh, they would have what you would describe as a green thumb. I have the thumb that gets allergic whenever it touches nature. I don't know what that is called. But when we moved in the house, they had three islands in our yard. And because we are not good at keeping up with our gardening, they just overgrow. So our plan has been to get rid of each of the islands. And it's taken us a few years to get rid of two of them now. But we got rid of the first one. Half of the island was full of really deep roots. And to get everything out, we had to dig deep. And the other half, it wasn't very deep roots, so we were able to just, you know, kind of rake it up. And so because that one half was full of deep roots, we had to dig deep. Then there was spots we needed to fill if we didn't want to slip and fall. So we bought some topsoil, and we put the topsoil all over that one half. And then we bought grass seed, and we put the grass seed on the on the whole entire island, and we started to walk. And if you can imagine what happened with this topsoil, the good soil, it had good grass. It it sprouted up green and and lush and strong. On the other side, where we didn't put down that topsoil, the grass didn't really come in, and eventually weeds just kind of filled in the gap. And really, what made all the difference in the world between those two sections that were right next to each other was the kind of soil and how deep the soil went. And today, Jesus is going to teach a parable that's going to be all about the soil. And the kind of soil that exists is going to make all the difference. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for a chance to come together today to worship you. Lord, to think that your love is so incomprehensible. If we could write it all out, it was impossible to write your love. Lord, your mercy is so great and grandeur that we can't comprehend it. So today, as we open your word, Lord, we pray that your love for us will be evident. That we pray that as we study your word, we'll be challenged to change our lives, Lord, and to follow you, to be obedient to you, and to live for you because you've changed us. So speak through your word today. In your name we pray. Amen. In Matthew 13, uh, we're going to be, we're in a series called The Kingdom of Heaven is Like, and we're going to be looking at different parables. And, and here's the first parable. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. So it's large crowds gathered, gathered around him that he got up in a boat and sat at it while all the people stood on there. So if you think of the picture, uh, so Jesus is teaching, and because of his healing, because of everything else, There are large crowds that are now traveling to hear him speak. They're wondering what he would say. And so he's on the beach, and as he's there, as the crowds come in and come in and come in, there's so many people there, he has to get out on a boat. And then he gets out on a boat, and the normal posture for teaching would be to sit down. So he sits down, and and you hear the crowd kind of get quiet to hear this traveling rabbi speak. And this is what he said. 
And he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came up and ate it. Some fell on the rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Jesus used ordinary, everyday things in his parables. As he told these stories, he used things like seeds and soil and farming and wheat and weeds and yeast and pearls and fishing nets and doors and sheep and goats. He used these everyday items to explain the kingdom of heaven. Now these everyday items would make the stories memorable, but would also cause them to be very easy to memorize. So the disciples, as they traveled out, could remember, okay, that was the story that Jesus told, and remember the principles of them. So in one sense, it made them much easier to understand. But as we looked at last week, if you remember, the reason of the parables, why Jesus spoke in them, was to both conceal and reveal. To conceal truth for those that reject Jesus and to reveal truth to those that believe in Him. But one of the hardships we have is that we're in a completely different culture than they were. Now this last week we had the blessing of moving in. Uh, my foster Afghan son, his family came to America and we had the blessing of moving them into a house. It was such a joyous occasion. It was wonderful. But as they're adjusting to America, there's so many things they, they don't know how to do because all their, their plumbing and, and, and heating and, and cooking, all things are completely different in Afghanistan. So they're having to adjust. And when we read the Bible, we go back to these, this agrarian society, this farming society, and, and all of these things sometimes go way over us, right? Because you know, we're thinking, okay, I need to get corn. What do I do? I go to Meyer. They're three for, or six for two dollars that one day. I was like, wow, this is awesome. Everything else is super expensive, but somehow I can get six corn for two dollars. That's not in my notes. I don't know why I'm telling you that. But the point being that we don't live in a farming society. And so, uh, Keith DeBoer passed along a section of a book on parables written in the late 1800s, and I think it actually helps us Understand. So what I want you to do is to put your mindset back there in the Old Testament times in a farming society and listen to this story. William Arnott writes, Whether a sower was actually in sight at that moment in a neighboring field or not, every man in that rural assemblage must have been familiar with the act or would instantly recognize the truth of the picture. The sower, with a big bag of seed dependent from his shoulder, stalks slowly forth in the prepared field. With measured equal steps, he marches in a straight long line the furrow, tossing the seed with measured equal responses. His hand, accustomed to keep time with his advancing footsteps and to jerk forward with considerable force in order to secure the uniformity of distribution, he cannot stop suddenly when he reaches margins of the field. By habit, the right hand continues to execute its movement in unison with the sower's steps as he's turning around. And thus portions of the seed are thrown on the unplowed margin of the field and the public path that skirts it. Birds, scared for a moment by the presence of the man, 
Hover in the air till his back is turned on another tack. And then each, eager to be first, sweep down and swallow up all the grain that has found no soft place to hide in. Even if no birds were near, the seed that fell on the wayside was as surely destroyed in another way. In Luke's narrative, it suggests that it was trodden under foot of men. Some also would fall on stony places where there was not much earth. And they sprang up because they had no deepness in the earth. But when the sun was up there, they scorched because they had no root. They withered away. The stony places are not portions of field where many separate stones may be lying on the surface, but portions which consist of continuous rock underneath and a thin sprinkling of soft soil over it. Here the young plants burst forth through the ground sooner than in spots where the flower had a deeper bed. But when the rains of spring have ceased... The sun of summer has waxed hot. The moisture is quickly quickly exhaled from the shallow soil, and the fair promise dies. But even if that seed falls on deep, soft ground, you cannot count with certainty on a rich return in harvest. Although plants without obstruction strike their roots deeply into the soil, moist earth, and rear their stalks aloft in balmy air, they may be rendered barren by at last by the simultaneous growth of rival more powerful than themselves. Weeds. We all know about them. Unless the grain not only grow deeply in the ground, but grow alone there, it cannot be fruitful. Some fell along the thorns, and thorns sprung up and choked it. Beside those thorns, we may include under the term here, all rank weeds, varying with countries and climates, which infest the soil and hurt the harvest. The green stalks that grow among the thorns are neither withered in the spring nor stunted in their summer's growth. They may be found in harvest taller than their fruitful neighbors, but the ear is never filled, never ripened, and the reaper gets nothing in his arms but long slender straw adorned at the top with graceful clusters of empty chaff. The roots of the thorn drank up the sap of the ground while their branches veiled off the sunlight and thus the good seed starved beneath and overshadowed above, although it started fair in spring, Produces nothing in the autumn. He continues, As the story of failure is long and varied, the story of success is short and simple. Other seed fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. The design of this picture is to reveal the various causes at which at different times and different places render the farmer's labor abortive and garner empty. The seed, when none of these things is embedded in it, prospers under the ordinary care of a man and the ordinary gifts of God. So Arnott helps us experience the parable. But a lot of these parables, they don't have an explanation, but Arnott helps us experience it, but Jesus actually explains it. He writes, he says this, Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their hearts. This is the seed sown on the path. The seed falling on the rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seeds falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. 
This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Now before we get on to the different types of soils, there are two other elements in this parable. First we have the sower. The sower would be going and sowing the seeds. What is this referencing? Well, in Old Testament, God is referred to as the sower. We just read that. In a later parable, Jesus refers to himself as the sower. But I think the reason why the sower isn't identified here with Jesus is I think, really, the sower is anyone who casts seed. So the sower would have been God the Father as he cast the seed of his word. Jesus as he taught about the kingdom, the disciples as they went out and shared the gospel. Anyone who shares, whether a missionary, a pastor, a parent, or a plumber, is someone who sows the seeds of the kingdom. What is the seed? Well, in Jesus' explanation, it's referred to as the word six times, as the word of the kingdom one time. The seed is essentially the gospel. It's the good news about Jesus Christ who came to the world to establish his kingdom and to sovereignly rule through his death and resurrection. It's God's word. As we stood and read, we read Isaiah 55. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. That is why we gather every week and we study God's word. It's why we open it. It's why we study it. It's why we try to determine what it means. It's why we look deeply at it. Because the Bible calls God's word living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating to joints and marrow. And we're called to sow it liberally because it won't return void. In many of your Bibles, this parable is called the parable of the sower. But we have to remember as we think through that, the titles in your Bible are not inspired. The verse numbers and chapter breaks are not inspired. The very words of the Bible are inspired. So sometimes you get... Like the chapter ends in verse 12, and then the next chapter starts in 3, 1. You're like, wait, that goes with, that goes with the previous thing. That's because the, when the Bible was written by God through men, there were no chapters and verses. It was just written. And then later they added those verses. Same thing with the titles. You know, if you look in your Bible, different Bibles have different titles for different sections. Well, I think this really should be called the parable of the so, or the, of the soils. Parable of soils. Because even though it's about the sower and it's about the seed, ultimately the main thing this is about is the soil. This is the primary focus. And so as we try to figure out that primary focus of this parable, I want to give you uh, three things we should do when we look at parables. This is from uh, the Exalting Jesus in the Matthew commentary. First, we want to listen from the hearer's perspective. One thing we want to try and do when we read parables is try and enter into the hearer's experience. Again, we're not from an agrarian society. We, we don't naturally think about a sower casting seed. We, we do things way different. So we want to go back to their place and try and experience how would they experience this story. How would they hear it? What would they hear? What would they experience? Secondly, we need to look for the main point. 
Most parables have one main point. So we try to determine what that is. And then third, we need to let the truth change your perception. The point of parables is really to cause us to think. You know, I I think sometimes we, we read just basic truths and we go, okay, that makes sense. But we read things in story, it should cause us to go, okay, what was Jesus saying there? What did, what did he mean? What was the purpose of that parable? What was he trying to communicate? If we're trying to find the main point in this parable, I believe it's found in the last soil. But there are three soils that lead up to that. And each of these three soils, there's two elements. First, there's an internal thing going on in the listener. There's something going on in their heart. I like to call them the hard heart, the uncommitted heart, and the divided heart. But there's also an external thing happening to the listener. Attacks from Satan, trouble and persecution, the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. All those external things are impacting the internal heart of the listener. And really often, when we experience things in the world, it reveals our heart condition. You know, I was uh, thinking about one day... I was walking around and I was carrying some water and I got bumped and I spilled water. And when you're at your house and you spill water, it's like, it's not a big deal, right? Because it's water. But if you're walking and you get bumped and you spill pop, you're like, or especially like something red on carpet, you're kind of freaking out, right? But if I have water in my cup and I get bumped, the only thing that can come up is water. It doesn't magically change to a different thing when it's coming. If our lives are filled with God's grace and mercy, when we hit hard times, it reveals our heart. It reveals what's actually inside of us. If we truly have water, then when the hardships come, then what will come out of us is water. But if we have anger and resentment and bitterness, when hard times hit us, that's what's going to flow out. And so the heart is often connected to what happens to us on the outside. So let's dive into the parable. Matthew 13, verse 18. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in the heart. This is the seed sown along the path. This first seed represents a hard heart. The listener hears the message about the kingdom but does not understand it. Last week, Jesus said that their lack of understanding is caused to a rejection of Christ. With a hard heart, the seed doesn't have anywhere to go to take root. And so the evil one comes and snatches it away. The Bible says that Satan is on the prowl. He's a thief coming to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus comes to give life. Life to the fullest. So Satan is looking for those hard hearts to to come in and snatch away the stuff that doesn't penetrate the soil. Now see, we see a lot of examples of this in the scriptures. The Pharisees, you know, they, they, they come to investigate this Jesus that they heard about. He was healing the sick. He was casting out demons. But as soon as they hear him teaching about divinity as soon as they see him eating with sinners and tax collectors as soon as they see him healing on sabbath they go he can't be who he really is right when these parables end jesus returns to nazareth and the people that are there are saying this he can't be truly who he says to be we saw where he grew up the messiah must not come from here so we see these examples of the scriptures of hard hearts and i've seen this so many times in my life, going and sharing to people, and they're just angry. 
mad at the gospel, at the Bible, at Christians, and there's, there's no way to have those conversations. Secondly, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. And I call this the shallow heart because, again, we think about rocky soil. It's not soil that has a whole bunch of rocks in it. And if you go to Israel, it's a lot of area of rockiness. <laughs> and so the idea here is it's a very shallow soil and there's a hard bed of rock underneath. And so immediately someone hears that word, their first response is joy. But they lack roots. And as soon as trouble or persecution comes, they fall away. In John 6, we have the story of Jesus traveling and teaching. And he's gathering all these followers and all these people want to follow him. But then as soon as he gives a hard teaching, well, they do. That's too hard. And they leave him. He turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave too? They say, where else would we go? You have the words of life. But when that hardship came, they left. In this soil, the true heart condition is revealed the moment trouble comes. Now, during the storm, now, the wind got so bad. I mean, there was, uh, we went golfing um, as the, the church golf group, and it looks like the tornado kind of touched down on the golf course. There was, it was crazy. All these trees come down. But in the places where it wasn't a legitimate tornado, where it was just strong wind, what seemed to happen was the trees that had that were dying, that had shallow roots, were the ones that, that fell because they didn't have that support system underneath. In verse 6, Jesus said, When the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. In one of my commentaries, I read a story about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Maybe you've read some of his stuff in the past. One day, he preached a really powerful sermon. An unbeliever came up to him after the sermon and said, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, I must tell you that if you would have given an altar call at the end of your message, I certainly would have come forward. I would have believed. Lloyd-Jones replied, if you don't want Jesus five minutes after the service is over, then I assure you that you didn't truly want him at any point during my sermon. As a youth pastor, I saw this all the time. We'd go to these big retreats or big conferences, and kids would say, you know, I want to follow Jesus. They'd raise their hand. And then they get home, and the normal everyday things in their life, and they realize that means changing some things in their life, and they're like, "That's, that's too much. That's not what I signed up for. I think it should also cause us to be weary, or wary is the right word, to be wary of those that say, well, I made a decision when I was in Awana, I made a decision when I was in youth group, but their life shows absolutely no fruit. You know, First John 2 says, they went out from us but did not really belong to us, for if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. This idea that if we are true believers, if we're good soil, we will bear fruit. Verse 22, the seed falling on the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the world, making it unfruitful. This is the divided heart. The affections of the heart are torn between wealth or, 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 or comfort and the truth. James Montgomery calls this the strangles, the strangled heart. Strangled by worldly concerns, strangled by worldly attachments, strangled by the love of money. 
What do these two things have in common? The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Well, a lack of trust in God. A lack of trust in God's provision. That He knows what's best and that He has what's best for us. Jesus said you can't serve both God and money. They lead to a divided heart. He said it was harder for the rich man to enter the heaven than a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Paul writes that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. This is not saying that as a Christian, God can't prosper you and you can't have wealth. What it's saying is that there's this deceptiveness that comes with wealth where we put our trust in it and our faith in it and our pursuit becomes it. I love this quote. If you trust and treasure money above all, when you don't have enough of it, your heart will be flooded with all sorts of anxieties. But if you trust and treasure money above all and have a lot of it, your problems are solved, right? Wrong. Then you have a bigger problem. You won't see your need for God and His grace, provision, and salvation. So we live in such an affluent society where every single day we're bombarded with things we need. You need to get the new iPhone. I don't know what number it's at right now, but that's it's coming out like next week and there's all this hoopla about it. You need to get the new car. You need to get a new house. There's always these things that the advertisers are going to tell you you need to have. If you don't have this, then your life will be somehow incomplete. And it's all this intentional drive to get you to, to spend money, to get you to get stuff. And that can lead to a heart that is strangled by the money and deceitfulness of wealth. It's tempting to believe the prosperity gospel. I mean, it's not hard to find it. During COVID, you know, when I was looking for things, people asked me, well, what's, who's someone good to listen to on TV? So I pulled up, the, you know, on TV, the different preachers. And let me tell you, there's a high percentage of prosperity gospel preachers, probably because people send them money so they can make more videos. But the idea of prosperity gospel is that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And that sounds good, right? It's kind of more like the American dream. See, the prosperity gospel is an empty trough when someone comes to find living water and there's nothing there. Promises everything, but misses the point. I was talking to some friends at dinner a few weeks ago, and uh, we were just talking about how without having a grounding and good theology about how Trials and hardships can kind of wreck your faith. And we were talking specifically about infertility, with, with waiting and hope starting and talking about that. And hearing the stories of people who had been told by well-meaning Christians, well, you're not able to have a baby because you don't have enough faith. They were literally told that. That kind of theology wrecks people's faith. Someone dealing with cancer, someone dealing with hardship, someone dealing with difficulties and, and thinking that I did something wrong and therefore God is punishing me. And if I just have enough faith, if I just do enough good things, then God will reciprocate and it treats God like a genie in a bottle. And we're just going to rub it and then if I say the right prayer or do the right things, God will give me the results I want. But Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. He warned the disciples they were going to walk a hard road. They were going to walk through difficulty. And in fact, 11 out of 12 of them were going to be martyred for their faith. 
See, following Jesus doesn't mean that God's going to give us everything we want, that everything is going to be easy. God promises to be with us. He promises that His burden is not heavy. His burden is light. He doesn't promise us that the burdens of this world will not be hard to walk through, but rather that He will take them for us and walk with us. See, the third soil can't deal with either poverty or riches. And poverty, the third soil, says, God, I I thought you were going to give me everything I needed. Why am I still struggling? And riches, the person says, well, I don't really need you because I have everything I want. It's like the rich young ruler who just says, I can't give up that stuff because I'm too wealthy. See, there's this temptation to rely on our stuff and our money and our salary. And then when things don't go right, then our faith can be choked away. Now we get to the four soil. The seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word. Let me rewind. So if you're struggling with infertility, it's not because God's punishing you and God will meet you in that. If you're struggling with cancer, God will meet you in that. God doesn't promise to heal you. God doesn't promise to take away your struggles. But God promises that if you draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. God is the God of the brokenhearted. He draws near to those who are broken. God comes alongside us. In my lowest and worst moments, I'm so thankful that God met me there. God didn't always remove the hardship, remove the difficulty, but He met me in it. Jesus chose to come down to this earth and suffer. To walk through this life and experience betrayal and pain and suffering and loss and ultimately to give His life for us. So that when we go through suffering, we don't have a God who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who walked through all of them and experienced all of them. So when we go through hardship, we can look to Him. Back to the fourth soil. But the seed falling on the ground, on the good soil, refers to someone who hears the word, understands it. And this is the one who produces crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what it's sown. The last soil is the driving point of this sermon. True faith produces fruit. True faith produces fruit. True faith produces fruit. The good soil refers to someone who hears the word, but they don't only hear the word, they understand the word. They don't only understand the word, they produce a crop. Now, according to scholars, in that time, a good crop was seven to eight times, seven to eightfold. A good year, a really good year would be ten. Thirtyfold would really be almost an impossibility, but sixty or a hundredfold would be completely impossible. What is Jesus saying here? If you put your faith and trust in me, if you are that good soul, you will reap a harvest that is impossible without God. God will do something in you that is impossible for you to do on your own. He's not saying that some will bear just a little less than expected and some will bear more, more than expected. He's saying that, no, I'm going to multiply it to an impossible number. So what's the difference between these soils? The last one bears fruit. Good soil bears good fruit. In John 15:5 to 8 in the context of gardening, Jesus writes, 
I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 8, this is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So what is the fruit that we bear as followers of Jesus? Well, in Galatians 5, Paul describes the fruit of the Spirit as this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and faithfulness. When God is showing in us His Word, those are the things that spill out. So that when other people experience us, they experience Christ as they experience our love, or our joy, or our peace in the midst of horrific circumstances, or our gentleness as we respond out of kindness instead of out of anger, our faithfulness as we continue to live for God in the midst of hard circumstances those those fruit come out the true believer doesn't have a hard heart or a shallow heart or a divided heart a true believer receives the word understands it accepts it and applies it they have true faith satan can't come and snatch it away persecution can't come and wither it the worries of this life can't strangle it. That is the point of the story. True faith receives the truth and bear, bears fruit. True faith bears fruit. So how do we apply this to our lives? I have three applications today, because I just like three. First, cast the seeds liberally. We don't know what kind of soil our, our neighbor, our coworker, our family member, our friend is. In fact, we're not responsible for the results. We may be telling God, God, you don't understand where this person's at. But God's going, look, you're not omniscient. <laughs> you don't know what kind of soil they are. That's not your job. Cast the seeds. You don't know where they're going to land. There's sometimes where we're casting seeds and someone is good soil. We had no idea they were good soil. We were just being faithful. <clears throat> How will the seed bear fruit if it's never planted? In the words of Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone, not some, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And we cast the seeds out because if anyone confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, they will be saved. And so we share that message abundantly because we want to see every person come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we share and we share and we share because everyone who trusts and calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he continues, How then can they call on the one they do have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We're called to cast the seeds. We've been talking for the last year about this initiative called Who's Your One? We want everyone here to choose one person. One person who does not yet know Jesus. And to be intentional with that relationship. To pray for him every day. The thing I have on my phone is every day, uh, the, the birthday of my one 
his, that date, I turned into a time, and the alarm goes off. And every day at that time, I pray for my one. So if your one's birthday was 1-1, one, one, January 1st, then you'd set your timer for 101 every afternoon. As soon as that timer hit, then you'd pray for that person. To think, I want to pray for my person every day. Pray for my one every day. Second, invest in your one every week. That could be a simple thing as sending a text. It could be a simple thing as sending an email. If you work with them, it's stopping by their, their desk and saying, Hey, how you doing? Checking out on the week. Invest in them every week. And third, invite them to the next right thing. Now, for some people, that might be church. You might say, Hey, I would love to have you join us in church on Sunday. But for others, that, that might be way too much of, of a, a step up. And so you might invite them to something like crafts and coffee. We had 50 ladies here last night, or yesterday afternoon, making beautiful crafts. But there's a, there's a simple thing, a simple way. We have board game night uh, once a month. Those are simple things that are not threatening. We can invite someone in who, who doesn't feel like they're not ready to come to church. Or it doesn't have to be a church event. You can invite them to go to a Griffins game with you. Just investing and inviting to the next right thing and, 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 and thinking through that. It's been interesting. Over the last few years, we've had a number of people accept Christ. And what's the common theme has been is that people were praying for them, people were investing in them, and people were inviting them. And those three things were consistent in every case. We don't know what the results of the seed will be. My dad was a teenager. He was... Uh, alcoholic father, divorced family, raised by his grandparents. And one of his friends invited him to essentially youth group. And she was a girl and she was pretty, so he went. And then he heard the gospel and his life was changed forever. Because of that, my life has been changed. My kids' lives have been changed. And thousands of others through his ministry in the mission field. Because someone invited him. Sandy was a teenager, struggling. She had three friends that were different. First thing she noticed was they didn't curse, and that was so weird to her. But they started inviting her to church, inviting her to youth group, and she accepted Christ. Now she's my wonderful wife, my beautiful kids. A life changed forever by a simple invitation. We don't know what the soil is, so we have to cast the seeds. Second, trust God. What does false faith look like? Seeds sown on the path that reject Christ. Shallow and thorny soil that responds initially to the message but withers with persecution or trouble or, or is strangled by the worries of this life and deceitfulness of wealth. What is true faith? What makes soil good soil? It's trusting God. In the midst of hardships, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of financial struggles, when life is trust, when life is hard, sorry, trusting God. James 1 says the testing of your faith develops perseverance. First Peter said these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by a fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter is saying God is doing something through your trials. James says God is doing something through your trials. Because true faith trusts. Trusts that God is at work. 
So we cast the seeds liberally, we trust God, and lastly, we produce fruit. Now, this is not a legalism thing of saying you have to do these things and, and not do these things. It's more of the idea of Galatians 5. If we are true believers, then we should produce fruit. Our lives should be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and faithfulness, and self-control. There's a joy that comes to serving the Lord that God multiplies the results. It's not about me. It's not about what I do. It's not about trying to earn my salvation in any way, shape, or form. It's simply that if I trust God and I give my life to God and I'm obedient to Him, then He's going to take those things and He's going to multiply them way beyond anything I could ever do. It's not just a good harvest, a seven or eightfold. It's an impossible harvest that only God can do. Thirty, sixty, a hundredfold. God is the one at work. And so we open ourselves to that and we ask God to work through us, and He does. In Psalms 1, we memorized this a few summers ago. It's this idea that we're blessed when we don't walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but that our delight is in the law of the Lord, that we meditate on it day and night, that God changes us as we read His Word and study His Word. And that person, what is the result of that? It's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they does, whatever they do, prospers. Now that prosperous thing there is not meaning that we're going to be prosperous in this life in the way that our culture defines prosperity. But that God is going to take our faithfulness, and our relationship with Him, and He's going to prosper it 30, 60, 100 fold. He's going to do the impossible through us, which we cannot do on our own. Because God has called us to be fruitful. And He wants us to cast the seeds liberally, trust Him, and produce good fruit. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm so thankful for people that have cast seeds my life was forever changed by a teenager who invited a teenage boy to a youth group. And that boy going and hearing the gospel and being forever changed and being my father. My life has been forever changed by three teenage girls who loved you and lived out their faith and just invited another teenage girl to come to church, come to youth group, and told her about Jesus. All of our lives have been impacted in many ways by people that have been faithful by sowing the seed. Not knowing the soil that they were sowing to, but sowing it faithfully. So Lord, may we do that. May we be sowers. But Lord, also, we just pray that we'll trust you. That you produce fruit in our lives. That we'll meditate on your word day and night. We'll be changed by it. And you'll do your work in and through us. Lord, help us to be people that produce good fruit. In your name we pray. Amen.